But you would say, well, most everybody knows that. I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, let me remind you where we're at. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for a long time now, okay? We are getting ready to wrap it up. That's good news, right? Um, Not really. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. We're in Luke chapter 23 today. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said that we need to head to Jerusalem. And him and his disciples, him and his twelve, started down the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so Luke has recorded now 14 chapters of progress from Luke, all the way to Luke chapter 23, of what has been going on as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And all along the way, he's been telling them, when I get there, I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. And they're going to abuse me, and they're going to take my life, and I'll be, ri- I'll be risen from the dead. I will raise victorious over death. And they just don't get it. And so we've been walking through that for some time. And now we arrive in Luke chapter 21 and 22. Those very events are at play. And now what we'll be looking at is that Jesus now before the governor of Jerusalem, the governor over Judea, Pilate, an official of Rome, who's placed there, quite honestly, to keep the people suppressed. That is his role. And Jesus now will stand before him. And in the midst of... It's just amazing how God works. In the midst of the moment where the gospel is one. So in the moment when the gospel is happening... When Jesus goes to the cross and dies for sins and raises victorious, right in the middle of that moment, we see Jesus living out the gospel. I compare it to those, you know those dolls, those, they're Russian a lot of times, those nested dolls, okay? Where you like, you know, you have this big one, you open it up and there's another one just like it, you open it up, another one just like it, and they're like all inside of one another, these nested like little, you know, figurines. The gospel is the same way. Right in the, right in the moment when Jesus is dying for sins, we are going to see the gospel portrayed right before our eyes. And it's an awesome telling of the greatest story of all time. And it answers the question, what is the gospel? Well, now the word gospel literally meant good news, is what it meant. It's come to mean much more than that. But when it was used in Jesus' day, it just meant good news. We would say, hey, I've got some gospel for you guys. And, you know, you might talk about that, you know, the Steelers won last weekend or something like that. Okay, It's just good news. But it's grown to mean much more than that. It's grown to be more than that in our hearts and in our minds. And just to show you an idea of what it is, I want to pick one verse. It's not from Luke. You keep your finger in Luke. Stay in Luke. But I want to put a verse up on the screen here. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Now hear this verse, and let's see if we can't find the gospel. It says, The death that he died, and that is Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's Romans 6.10. And in it we find the gospel. The good news. Let me show you to you. First of all, we have this. That Jesus died for sinners. Go ahead forward one slide for me, please. Jesus died for all 
it says. Jesus died for sins. He died for sinners. Instead of you or me dying, Jesus died in our place. That is the gospel. Now, the gospel includes the fact that his death matters. That he is God in the flesh. And so he's not just somebody who dies. He is the God-man who dies for sins and also dies for sinners. But folks, what I want you to see today as we move into Luke chapter 23 is that's not all the gospel is. Now, if that's all it was, that would be wonderful. But that's not all that it is. The gospel has a bigger play in our life than just that. I know it kind of hurts me to say just that when I'm talking about Jesus dying for sins. But there's another very important part of that verse that we cannot miss in the gospel. Let's read it again. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Not only did Jesus die for sin, Jesus died to sin. Now let that soak in for just a minute. What that means is this. Yes, Jesus died in our place. It should have been you. It should have been me on that cross. We deserved to die. That is the gospel. But Jesus died for sinners. But not only did Jesus die for sin, Jesus died to sin. Jesus died to sin. And so when he rose victorious over the the death and the grave and sin, he now lives to God. So what that means is this. Let me summarize this for you. And I might use two words here that you don't know the definition to, but I'll help you understand them. It means this. That we in Christ are justified. That's Jesus died for us. And we have been given His righteousness. We stand before the the Lord of all creation with Jesus' righteousness given to us. All of His righteousness given to our credit. Jesus died for sinners. He died instead of us. He rose victorious. Instead of me raising victorious, He rose and gives me that righteousness. But that's not all the gospel, folks. That's not all of it. He also died to sin. And now he lives to God. What that is, the big word for that, is sanctification. And what that means is, the power of sin in your life. Now, not the presence. Well, it also includes the presence. Not just the, not just the penalty Not just the penalty of sin. Because of sin, the penalty we deserved was hell. But Jesus died for sinners, so we don't don't experience hell. The penalty of sin has been broken. But because of the gospel, the power of sin in my life 
has been broken as well. Jesus died to sin. He raised victorious over sin. So the power of sin in your life is now broken. When you came to Christ, you remember that day? When you got saved? Let me say, you don't have to know the exact day. You don't have to be able to tell me the time and the place and the moment. I I understand that. But there was a time, if you're in Christ, when you weren't. And then there was a time when you were. Understand, prior to that moment when you came to Christ, you were under the penalty of sin. And you were under the power of sin. You could do nothing but sin. That's why it is that you struggled like you did. Now, some people were saved at such a young age they can barely remember. But there's some of us in the room that were saved at a later age, and we know what it means to be under the power of sin. But when Jesus, what the gospel means, is that when Jesus went to the cross... And he died for sin. And he died to sin. The power and the penalty of sin is broken. It's an awesome truth. Now you might say, well, how about the presence of it in my life then? How about the presence? When will that finally be eradicated? When will the, pre- with the very presence of sin in my life, when will it finally go away? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that it won't be until you're with Jesus. So now we're in this time when we're in this body made of flesh that is fully capable of sin. God's Spirit comes in and dwells us, breaking the penalty and the power of sin in our life. And so we have this battle that goes on. We have this battle that goes on in our hearts, in our lives. But there'll be a day when it's broken. Sin is indwelling, but it's no longer overpowering. Understand, when we look at Luke chapter 23, that is what Jesus is doing here. He is destroying the penalty He is destroying the power and He is allowing for the even presence of sin to be destroyed in our lives. Let's jump in here at verse number 1 of Luke chapter 23. It says that the whole company of them, and the whole company of them is the Sanhedrin. Okay, We'll show you an image here of, of what the Sanhedrin, where they met. Okay, I thought this was an interesting picture. Of, you can see here what Jesus was, was being involved in. This group of 70 plus 1 men. The chief priest, Sadducees, Pharisees. They're there in the middle of the night. This courtroom is a travesty of justice. Violating rules to the left and right all through the whole thing. It should never be happening, but it is. Jesus, as he stood here before the Sanhedrin, made it very clear who he is. Who he is. And he was killed for these claims. Never let someone tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. That's a lie. Jesus made it very clear that he is the Christ. 
He identified himself as the Son of Man. He identified himself as the Son of God. The Gospels record that for us. And that is the reason the Sanhedrin called for his death. Because he was saying that he was equal with God and they hated him for it. Now understand... There were many messiahs that came up and down, came up and down. And it still happens today in Israel. So what's the difference? The difference is this man, this God-man, had the actions to support the fact that he is God. See, they couldn't just attack him and say, Ah, you don't have anything good to say to us, because he's healing. He's raising from the dead. He's multiplying food. He is doing the actions of God. So they had no choice. Either accept him or kill him. And so the whole company of men arose in the middle of the night. These dignified men, these men who would be held high in the community, are now scratching around by firelight at night, dragging Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem, Pilate. And then they come to what is called a judgment seat, the judgment seat in Jerusalem. Same word Paul uses for we will stand before Christ. The judgment seat there in Jerusalem. As the crowd is there, mostly made up of chief priests and Sadducees, it's the middle of the night. Most everyone in Jerusalem is asleep. But there at least is 70 men Bless those they gathered along the way. And the Lord of the universe, who made all those people now, stands beside Pilate. The company brings him there. The accusation that they make is that Jesus is misleading the nation. And that he is teaching them not to pay tribute to Caesar. This is what they're saying to Pilate. This man is misleading us. He tells us it's not right for us to pay tribute to Caesar. And he's called himself a king. Now as you read through the passage, you see Pilate here. He interacts with Jesus in some some way, in some fashion, in some form. He encounters some truth. He encounters the truth of Jesus. And he says, I find no fault with this man. I see that this man has done nothing wrong. And so Pilate sends him from that courtroom to another. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 10, is now he's in front of Herod. Luke's the only gospel writer that records this event with Herod. Herod is a turncoat against the, Jew, the, the Jewish people. He himself is, is half Jewish, okay? And the Romans use him as a puppet to kind of keep the people in line. Jesus comes before Herod. Now, Herod, you should know Herod, okay? This is the the son of the Herod that called for Jesus' death when he was born. This is the Herod that killed John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist accused him of having an adulterous relationship with a family member. Incest and adultery. That's this man, Herod. It upsets Herod. So, in a drunken stupor, He calls for John the Baptist's head to be brought to him. And they lop off John the Baptist's head and bring it in. Horrible moment. Now this same Herod has heard reports of Jesus. 
Luke records that he was kind of looking forward to this. He, he wanted to talk with Jesus because he'd heard about him and what he did. Jesus said nothing to Herod. Nothing. He stands before him in silence. Herod then, in a mockery, drapes this, you know, sort of cloth on him, crown of thorns. They treat him with contempt, it says. Abuse him. They send him back to Pilate. Now, Pilate this third time is exasperated. We'll see it in the text in just a second here. He's frustrated now. They've woken up in the middle of the night now, the second time. He says, guys, we've already done this once. There's nothing wrong with this man. There's no reason for me to punish this man. But the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they will not give up. They will not give up. And so now they start twisting the screws on Pilate. They start twisting the screws. And the ultimate is this. They say, if you're a friend of Caesar, you'll hate this man. You'll deal with this man. Now this was a, was a scary possibility for Pilate. Because if Caesar thought that Pilate wasn't his man, he would lose his life. Matter of fact, tradition tells us Pilate did lose his life. Soon after this account, maybe 10, 15 years later, he was brought to Rome because of his mishandling of Judea and Jerusalem. He was sent off to an island, and there he killed himself. Never recovered. Never, I believe, turned to Christ. I think what we'll see here is, as we look at these accusers as they stand before Jesus... We, we see what I'm calling three calls of the gospel. We've talked about what the gospel is, but I want you to understand that there's a call on your life. There's a call on your life to respond to the gospel. The gospel is a wonderful truth, but it calls for everything in our lives. When we look at Pilate, we're going to look at three, three groups of people here. We're going to look at Pilate first of all, and I want you to see that the call of the gospel is to trust Christ enough to respond. To trust Christ enough to respond. Now notice here that we have Pilate. In verse number 1, they bring him before Pilate. And they begin to accuse him. And their accusations now revolve around three things. Misleading the nation, forbidding tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a king. Now let me tell you what Pilate's role is. Because it's important to understand why Pilate doesn't respond. Pilate's role is to suppress the people. His role is to suppress the people there in Jerusalem, in Judea. That is his role. And he has two sort of weapons of mass destruction at his use. One is the Roman army. He has there at his call, at his beck and call, all the troops that he needs to squelch the people at any moment. That's his first weapon of mass destruction that Pilate can use at any time. The second one, the second one is related to that one, okay? And that is crucifixion. See, the Jews couldn't crucify. The Romans could. And crucifixion was a weapon that was used against the people to oppress. To let them know that they were nothing. And it would not be uncommon for you to walk through Jerusalem 
and see men, women, and children now hanging naked, bleeding to death on a cross. And every time you did, you look up and you know we are broken. You as a Jew, you in that in that culture, we are broken. We are slaves to these Roman people. And the way that slavery primarily worked was through taxation. The Romans would tax the people over and over and over. And if you didn't pay, crucifixion. The worst of all the taxes is called a tribute or a poll tax. Now, we hear poll tax, we think, oh, I've got to pay a tax to vote. That's not what it meant. It was also called a head tax. And what it meant is you had to pay a tax to be alive. If you were alive, you had to pay a tax. Over a 300-year period, there were 62 rebellions of the Jewish people against the Romans there in Judea. 62. And 61 of them were because of the tribute. The Jewish people were broken, beaten down by crucifixion, by tax, and by the Roman soldiers. And look where they are. They've brought Jesus to this official of Rome. What do they claim? He's teaching us not to pay taxes. This is a weapon of destruction in their lives. We want you to crucify him. You see the the significance of this. The hatred that's going on in their lives is great. It's ruling them. And Pilate sees it. You notice when you go through the passage here, Pilate says, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. What's he been teaching? He's been teaching love. He's been teaching grace. But what have they been telling Pilate that he's teaching? Don't pay taxes. Pilate, he will not respond. It's interesting when you read the other gospel accounts, his own wife comes to him and says, I had a dream. And in this dream it was clear to me that you should not do anything to this man Jesus. He's innocent. Don't do anything with him. Pilate, will not respond. The gospel calls for response, you guys. You know that. But it doesn't just call for response the day you got saved. That's not the response that that the gospel continues to call for in your life. Pilate would not respond. He's there encountering Jesus. He hears this teaching. He knows he's being manipulated. And he will not respond. He will not respond. I think one of the biggest obstacles to the gospel in our life, in our lives, in our world, in our culture, quite honestly, the biggest obstacle, folks, it's not the media, it's not the homosexual agenda, it's not redefinition of marriage, it's it's not those awful people that put all that stuff out there. You know what the number one obstacle of the gospel is in our culture? It's passivity. 
It's passivity. It's I'm called to respond and I won't. Pilate insisted on passivity. He would not respond. I got a friend. He used to love the Lord. We talk about it all the time. Love Jesus. Some things came in his life. And I told him, man, you've got to change. You've got to do something different. He wouldn't. Kept putting it off, kept putting it off, kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And if you met him today, he'd say he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. Doesn't believe in God. Truth is, he believes in God. He just doesn't like him. He just doesn't like him. And what he doesn't like about him is God calls us to respond. And it's scary. And it's risky. And God doesn't allow passivity. We must, the gospel calls for us to trust enough to respond. And you respond to what? Oh, you respond to the the gospel. Put your trust in Christ. But where are you leaning today, tomorrow? Jesus died to sin. He didn't just die for sin. He died to sin. Don't be passive. Okay, just quickly now, let me just mention my other two things here because I'm quickly running out of time. We go to the crowd. It strikes me how this, this crowd, listen to what they said They said he was misleading our nation. They said he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. He sets himself up as king. Matthew records that they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. Understand what that meant in that day. That would be like ISIS taking over the United States and us then crying out, No, ISIS will be our leader. I mean, this is, this is the oppressive government that's over them. You see, what we see here is we have to, the gospel calls for us to trust Christ enough to stand. To stand. Pilate, passive. The gospel calls us to stand. Stand for Christ wherever you're at. Because God has died for you. He's died to sin. Stand wherever you are to stand with Christ, to stand for Christ. These men would not. And then we go to Barabbas. You know, I, I, I hate to go so quick when verse number 18, Barabbas. Mm. You know what Barabbas means? Interesting. Barabbas, the name Barabbas means son of of a father. Hmm. Not a real significant name, huh? Son of a father. But think about what's going to happen here in a minute. Barabbas is going to change places with somebody. The son of the heavenly father. Let's look at it here. Verse number 18. But they cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now what we know is this. From the full gospel account, there was a tradition that would happen. And it was this. During the feast, 
Pilate now would, would offer to the people somebody to be released. And so Pilate, in his passivity, doesn't want to take a stand. The chief priests are taking no stand. Pilate comes up with this idea. I'll offer them Barabbas or Jesus. And certainly the chief priests, certainly they will choose to have Jesus released. Because they hate Barabbas. Why do they hate Barabbas? Barabbas was a zealot. Barabbas was trying to overthrow the Roman government. The chief priests wanted to only appease them. They hated Barabbas. But things didn't go quite the way Pilate hoped. Verse 19 says, He was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And from the parallel accounts, we know here at this point, Jesus was flogged by Pilate. Before the final desperate opportunity for the Jewish people to to receive Jesus, Pilate has him flogged. This means he'd be beat and very near to death. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Use the weapon of mass destruction on him. Use the tool against our own. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. And he delivered Jesus over to their will. The gospel calls for a few things. The gospel calls for us to reject passivity, to respond, to make a decision. The gospel calls for us to stand But truly what the gospel calls for us to do is to exchange. Jesus' righteousness for my own. Jesus' death for my own. The truth is, I'm Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. I'm the son of a father. I got a dad. I'm sure I never really lived up to his expectations in a lot of ways. None of us do. And I try to live my life the way that I, best I could, right? Just like you. But at the end of the day, this son of a dad really didn't count to much. Except for sin. But there came a day in my life when the son of the heavenly father opened up my eyes to his offer of exchange when he died for sinners and he died to sinners. 